So in our series, we're on our second week, What Are You Chasing After? And we're going to throw out some thought-provoking questions, if you will, each week in this series to see if we're thinking biblically about life's pursuits. We'll think deeply about whatever we're chasing, whether it's giving us eternal blessing or only temporary satisfaction. And so this series will help us consider why we chase after this or that, as well as the present and eternal implications for doing so. So what are you chasing after and why? Our series key verse is up on the screen and it says in Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all the works, Solomon says, that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. And look at this expression, vexation of spirit. That means grasping after the wind. And that was the impetus for the title of this series. What are you chasing after? It's like grabbing after the wind. Are you with me? Say amen. So in week one, we asked two questions. We asked ourselves whether we're chasing after our dreams or our destiny and whether we're chasing after popularity or purpose. Today, we're going to consider this thought, and that is, are you chasing after happiness or holiness? Are you chasing after happiness or holiness? Think about this with me. Have you ever made a resolution to be nicer, kindler, kindler, <laughs> kinder, gentler to people around you when they get on your nerves? You know, remember how that lasted about two hours until there weren't enough cashiers at the dollar store? Y'all help me preach this thing, amen? And how you went off? Come on now. Huh? That's what I'm talking about, amen? See, that's the difference between happiness and holiness. Happiness says I'll be cool until something plucks my nerves. But holiness says if they do pluck that nerve, I remember who saved me, like in that song, my redeemer, amen? and who sanctified me, and I'm going to do my best to respond gently and lovingly. So the, the why piece is this. Friends, we have this false notion that a holy lifestyle is boring and unhappy. I don't know about you, but if you know anything about me, I am happy in Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'm happy to be saved. I'm happy to be a Christian. Amen. And so uh, but that's just my thing. I, I, I enjoy the Christian life. It's not a, a chore. It's not a bore to me. Amen. I'm happy being, being saved. I'm not happy about all that I experience, but I'm happy in Jesus. Amen. So when we think about that, this is all, when, when we think about why all this holiness stuff is so important, it's because we really can't be happy unless we're first holy. Let me say that again. We can't be fully happy unless we're first holy. And I'm going to show you from our text today what I mean by that. See, leaving the dollar store mad makes you feel worse guilty after you told yourself you're going to do better, right? So it makes you feel worse. But see, leaving the same dollar store holy, amen, actually makes you feel happy because you did the right thing and you responded in the right way. Amen. So let's see what God says on this subject. I have the scriptures here up for you. First Peter chapter one, and we'll look at verses one through nine. First Peter one, verse one, let's pray. Bless Father now this reading and teaching and preaching of your word for your glory and all God's people said. So first Peter chapter one, verse one. First Peter here, he says in verse one, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
I'm throwing out some million dollar words here for you, but we'll explain them as best we can. Through sanctification of the spirit. That is inherently what makes you holy. Sanctification is the word from which we get our word saint. So we're literally sanctified. Does that make sense? We're holy. We're made holy in Jesus through the spirit of God. And that's unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, or grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, say abundant mercy, he has begotten us, notice it says again, unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, notice that, that fades not away and it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein, notice he says, you greatly rejoice, amen? Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold or many temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and uh, who having not seen, the Bible says you love, and whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice, notice, with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Wow, a lot of stuff in those verses, isn't it? Well, let's unpack it. You know, the big thing here is that we are sanctified. We are made holy because holiness and happiness have to link together. Yes. See, and when we think about then that we need to think about how our true happiness is rooted in our sanctification. And so let's look deeper. See, we receive several happy, happy, happy spiritual benefits, if you will, from our status as elect or chosen, sanctified, holy saints in this passage. So let's talk about some of these words then, one by one, the benefits and rewards. First of all is grace. In verse two, you see that verse? In verse two, it says grace. To receive grace from God, think about that, is like a flower receiving rain from heaven and pollen from bees. It's what allows us, like that flower, to flourish as well as to replicate itself. That's grace, the grace of God. Um, grace is meant to be shared, yes? The pollen that we pollinate out on other people is, is the overflow of the grace that's given to us. But then he talks about peace in verse 2. He says peace, the overflow of the sanctification process in us that produces happiness, is rooted also in words like peace. Peace is God saying everything is going to be okay. Amen. Not your little doll, baby, when you pull the little string and everything's going to be okay. Well, it is, but it's not just because the little doll baby said it. Amen. It's because Jesus said it. Everything's going to be okay. See, it's important who's saying that to us. Is it a doll baby or is it a, uh, I, see, see, I believe, we believe if a top-notch surgeon, think about this, tells us that over and over again, we're going to believe him over a quack mystic or, or, or so forth about something in our body being healed or being better. Are you with me? We're going to believe a loving parent over a total stranger. And so, yes, God's peace is real peace. All else is false peace. Yes. It depends who's telling you everything going to be OK. It depends on who's telling you that. But then I come across another word in verse three called mercy, mercy, mercy. 
God's mercy says, yes, you messed up. Yep, you sure did. But I ain't mad at you. I ain't mad at you. I ain't mad at you. But, but go on about your business and, and I always got your back. That's mercy. What else can we call that but mercy? <laughs> he ain't mad at you. So we got grace, we got peace, got mercy. Then in verse 3, we ain't even got out of verse 3 yet good. Before we got four things already we can be happy about. We got this lively or living hope. Are you with me? See, living hope means we'll never ever face a situation in life that God can't fix if he so chooses. If he so chooses. And even if he doesn't, in his sovereignty, he may choose not to. We still get to go to heaven. That piece, he's not going to take that piece away. So we still got heaven in the end anyway. So we can still say like the three Hebrew boys in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, we will not bow. Here's the verse. We will not bend and we will not burn. Look at this passage. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in Daniel 3 verse 16. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful. We don't even blink an eye about answering what we're going to do regarding our God. So you do your thing. We're going to do us. We're going to do Jesus. We're going to do Jehovah. We are not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, they know there's a little clause in there. If it be so, our God is able to deliver us if he chooses to do that. OK. And so from this burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand. OK. But if not, if he chooses in his sovereignty not to still let it be known. OK. That we will not serve thy small letter G. That ain't no big letter G, O-D-S. We will not serve thy gods. Nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That takes some grit, don't it? It really does. And so these Hebrew boys understood what it means to have a living hope, yes? But then we get to verse 4 and I read something about some heavenly blessings. You see them in there? See, everyone strives for something in life. Let me go back to our text here up on the screen. Everybody strives for something in this life, whether acceptance or glory, whether to survive or to flourish, whether to win or simply to finish. Whatever our thing is, none compares, none, to the everlasting glory which shall be revealed to the children of God. Can I get an amen from somebody right there? You can be, if, if everything else in your world falls apart, you still win in the end and you still go to heaven. So we don't have to walk with our hands hanging down. Amen. Then I think about perseverance in verse five. We're kept by God's power. That word means guarded and protected like through a military guard. And in our case, those would be angels. Yes. So as to escape hostile enemy invasion. Then I see another word, just rapid fire, one verse at a time. And that's rejoicing, rejoicing in verse five. See, that's as happy as it gets. That's really as happy as it gets. When we can sing in the face of disaster, when we can laugh in the face of trials. Ha ha! Didn't get me this time. Oh, ha ha! Right? Huh? Skip to Maloo when everybody is tripping around you. Amen. Amen. And so that's what we talk about rejoicing. But then I think about then in verse nine, we have this eternal salvation. I keep coming back to that eternal salvation. Doesn't that make it all worthwhile? Shouldn't that alone, that reality make us happy in Jesus? See, heaven is at the end of the storms of this life. Our faith is what gets us through. Let me say that again. Heaven is at the end 
of the trials of this life. But faith is what gets us through. So those things go hand in hand, don't they? Because we're kept by our faith. Even the end of your faith in verse 9, that is the salvation of your souls. And so that moves us then into our second thought. We've seen that holiness is a higher virtue than happiness, yes? Now let's ask ourselves, are you chasing after success in life or surrender to Christ? Are you chasing after success in life or surrender to Christ? See, think about this. Don't you want to have true, lasting success at school, at work, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships? Well, I'm going to answer that for you. Of course you do. So the good news is success and surrender are not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. Rather, they're dependent on each other when you think about that. Yes. So let's see why this dichotomy is important. And then that's this. God wants us, folks, to have success. He wants us to be successful. He wants us to have fulfillment. He's not an ogre. He wants as much as we want it for ourselves. He wants to set us up for success, not for failure. He just defines success differently than we do. That's all. See, as such, God knows that the true path to success is first to surrender. See, we need to go down before we go up. Yes. The problem comes when we reverse this divine order. See, let's begin discussing the two parts of surrendering to serve. First of all, I want you to see in a couple of verses that we look at here now in Joshua 1 and verse 8. True success is serving God. Look here in Joshua 1, 8. Two aspects, by the way, we'll look at in this verse of serving God. First of all, the Bible says in verse uh, 8 of Joshua 1, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. You see that? But thou shalt meditate. What are we supposed to do? Meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do. What are we supposed to do? According all that is written therein. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Here's your success. And then you shall have good success. You see that? So God is not an ogre. He wants you to be successful, but he gives you the formula for success. See, any successful mentor or mentee relationship involves two major dynamics. Two major dynamics I want you to understand. First, you got to learn from him. Notice that brings us to that word meditate. That word means in the Hebrew to imagine, to devise, to plot. In other words, to strategize. You listen to your teacher, your mentor, and you begin a rationale in your mind and you formalize in your mind a plan that works for you in light of what you receive from him or her. Are you hearing me? The second piece to this in this verse is then doing what he or she says. See, the worst thing you can do is get all this teaching and training and whatever have you from a pastor or a mentor or deacon or whoever the case may be is pouring into your life and then don't do nothing they tell you to do. The Bible says you need not only do it, but observe to do it. Be careful about doing it. Take great pains to do it and do it well. This is where the relationship then becomes reciprocal. Yes. And so not doing what we learn, you're wasting your mentor's time and your own, to be honest with you. And all that hard work that was put in. You know, Jesus himself said that this, uh, his greatest goal in life and ministry was to please the Father and to do his will. That would have been real success to Jesus. Look at these verses here. John 4, 34, Jesus said, my meat 
is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He also said, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. See, we do both of the above exclusively. Hear me now unto God. That is a God piece. See, once we develop good habits in our devotional life and in our obedience before him, then God is ready to use us to serve other people. And that's the second feature that we want to talk about. So true surrender, first of all, is serving God. But secondly, I want you to see this in Mark 9 and verse 35. True surrender is serving others. It's serving others. Two verses on our radar here. One is Mark 9, 35. Jesus says about him, it says he sat down and he called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all. And what does it say? Servant of all. Mark 10, 44. Whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Problem come when there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Amen. And so true surrender is serving other people. Let me talk about a few thoughts relative to that. First of all, going higher up with God involves going lower down with others. Notice that Jesus in verse 35 of Mark 9 sat down. When you sit down, you're going to be there a while. Amen. See, when you invite somebody in and they stand in, you know, I have my boss usually about after two minutes, I check in with her in the morning, find out where I'm going. After about two minutes, she get nervous and she make me sit down. So I'm going to be there for a while because she got to go and check and see who's out and who I'm covering and yada, yada, yada. And so we have fun with that. But going up higher means that we get down where people are. Going up with God means getting down with people. Yes. So this means that we don't discriminate, nor do we judge either. We serve all. The words all is in both of these verses. We're servant of all. Do you see that? My pastor used to say all means all. And that's all it means. Amen. There you go. There you have it. So we serve all the same. So this is how we pay our dues in life. Rarely does someone come right off the street or fresh out of college. Think about this and walk right into the door as the manager or the CEO. Do they? I've never seen it happen. So so not at all. There's some type of background experience or whatever that needs to be in place and earned first. Does that make sense? See, there's only a few earned doctorates on my job. I work with one of them, a special ed teacher, and I call her Dr. So-and-so because that's her title. She's earned that title. And I call her that with no problem. She's earned that right. See, my service to God and to her is to simply do whatever they tell me as a teacher aide, because that's what I do. Whenever she or other teachers that I work with, oftentimes they'll apologize for certain tasks that they ask me to do. And my classic response jokingly is to is really just to come back with I'm aide, you teacher. And they laugh and we have a good time with that. But that's my job. That's what I do. So how you want your coffee, ma'am? Amen. Amen. Don't have a problem with it. Not at all. Amen. Amen. Sugar, two creams or, 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 or sugar. What you want? Amen. Where, where, where can I take these forms for you? Who do I need to see to take care of this matter for you so you can teach? I'm aid. You teacher. Amen. That's how this rolls. So let's get that out of the way right, right away. Amen. And so uh, so that's that's how that works. You know, I thought about uh, a fascinating story is AOC. How many of y'all know who she is? AOC. She one of the youngest congresswomen ever elected. Amen. 
Just before she joined the US Congress, she waited tables in a New York City taco bar. That's humbling, isn't it? You know, Jesus doesn't discourage our natural desire for upward mobility nor promotion because he says in this passage that we looked at he that desires in mark 39 35 if you desire to be first he never said that was wrong did he he never said it was wrong if you desire to be first and chief you want to be the boss okay well here's how you do it you get down first see you got to learn how to be a good follower before you become a good leader yes so rather he simply says here's the formula to make it happen such that God approves and that we'll be blessed in our new position and we won't be haughty and proud and, you know, running roughshod over people. See, we need to make and consider ourselves, as Jesus says, last of all and least of all. Yes. See, the last in line can only move forward. When you think about it, where else you going to go? I'm already backed up against the wall here because we changed the chairs around and I only got three rows now going this way. So, you know, we're going wide now. So I don't want to be right up on you. So I'm all the way back here by the wall. I can't go no further back or I'll be in lab court. Right. That's behind this wall. I'm in the office. Right. So it is what it is. So. So I say that to say this here is um, is that God doesn't put us down for seeking to be up. He just tells us this is how you do it. See, the best bosses I've ever had, I don't know about you, are people that when I first walked in, I couldn't figure out who they was. Because they on the line with everybody, they hanging a hammer, sweating, you know, you had, they ain't had no tie on, you know. I'm like, who the boss around here? Oh, Mac. Mac, that dude over there, he the boss? Man, he on the line with everybody, right? Huh? I tell you what, I, I got some respect for my Mac. Huh? Amen. Or Sister Jane or wherever she at. She typing up more than everybody else in the office is. Huh? She ain't kicked back on her phone or on her cell phone in her office with her feet up on the desk. I work at this school, I'm telling you, with some of, and I've been at many in this city. I'm telling you, absolutely first class award winning teachers and, 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 and aides to these students absolutely top notch the best of the best of the best i get to rub shoulders with these uh, the things they do for kids who can do absolutely nothing for themselves all day long all day long um it's so humbling for me to be in their company uh to be around them but absolutely award-winning people they really are and so um you know but but again you, you can only go forward when you you know you at the bottom rung right and so, but, but it's neat to see bosses out mixing with the workers and laughing and joking with them and whatever have you, getting their hands dirty. So they've earned the right not to have to do that, haven't they? Surely they have. But leaders who fully identify with their people have much higher employee retention, don't they? They really do. And they have loyalty. I've worked with people who will drive, they'll pass 30 schools drive 30 minutes because they love the principal at the school they at. They've developed long-term relationships with these people. Um, they've had potlucks together and whatever it is they do, and they just love the staff. They love the fact that they work under this principal. They've told me that. And so uh, that's the case. So, so Paul the Apostle would even say that he had the right to a salary. He could have exacted money from them, but he chose not to. Look at this verse here. The Bible says, For you remember, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, you remember our labor and travail 
for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. It's worse people to owe money to is church people. Oh, my goodness. Huh? We preached unto you the gospel of God. He said, without charge, without charge. I ain't want to be owing nobody nothing. Well, you know, we cut you a check last week. No, no, you ain't cut me nothing. I built me five tents last week, so you ain't cut me nothing. Amen? Amen. So I'm eating steak because Paul the apostle earned this steak right here. Huh? Nehemiah also. Another very interesting passage. Nehemiah 5, 14. As they were building and renovating and renewing the city of Jerusalem and its temple. Here their leader says, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes, that would, be, that would have been the Persian king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. That means that there would have been a stipend available. They chose not to take it. And the Bible says, but the former governors that had been before me, they were chargeable unto the people. And they had taken of them bread and wine. Baby, pass me some more of them biscuits. That ain't, no, that ain't good enough. Go home and cook some more. That's a shame. They was chargeable to the people and took of them bread and wine. Beside that, they took the money too. Ate all the food up and took the money. So whatever was available, they took it. Besides 40 shekels of silver, yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. <laughs> right? So all the associate pastors and deacons, they in on it too. So the Bible says they bear rule, but he says, so did not I. Not because I wasn't worthy of it, but because of the fear of God. Yes? Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Fascinating passage, isn't it? Friends, as I wrap up our thoughts for today, let's walk in humility. You know, we live in a world that's obsessed with self-image, self-importance, and self-promotion, don't we? But not so with the children of God. Our deceitful hearts, Jeremiah says about that in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, can so quickly mislead us into an unrighteous overestimation of ourselves, doesn't it? Humility replicates the sweetness of Christ's humanity. You know, humility rescues relationships. It wins the respect of those previously disappointed people that you value. And it earns the listening ear of the unsaved. Humility enriches marriages. It puts others first, listening even when shutting off would be easier. Humility accepts the person even while simultaneously rejecting their sin, does it not? It welcomes, it embraces, it's grateful for every morsel. Humility refuses to fight for position or authority. It knows when to bow down or to step backwards to promote the character of Christ. Yes? Regardless of how unjust it may seem what you're going through. Humility is, it gives, it pacifies, and it strives to unite in truth. Does it not? Humility is gracious even when showing spite would come more naturally. Humility is patient because it trusts in the sovereignty of God. I love this quote, and I'll end with this. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful. Help us. Lord, if we do have ambition and we do want to get up to understand there's a formula for that. And I pray and ask, Lord, that 
you'd just be glorified and honored in every facet of our lives and in every step that we take. May you be glorified. May you be honored. And we'll thank you for this worship service. We give you the glory and give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Hope you watch.